It's like a massive relativistic field generator. Or some other bunch of science words you string together. This is Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast devoted to the TV we're obsessed with. And right now, we're watching The Expanse. I'm Jonathan Gitlin, and this week I'm joined by my colleague, John Timmer. Hi, thanks for having me on. Quite a lot's been happening in the show this last week. We got to see Mars a little bit more fleshed out, I think. We got to see where the show's drive technology came from. My name's Solomon Epstein. And I changed everything. And then, obviously, things went down on Ganymede. Yeah, I'm disappointed. They keep introducing these Martian ship captains I really like and then killing them off almost instantly. <laughs> the series Red Shirts, perhaps. Yeah, Teresa Yao was great, and the guy who was in charge of the ship that Bobby Draper was on was was clearly the voice of reason. And You know, I really hope Eros was our tech. Be nice to have something in our back pocket to turn Earth to slag if need be. Well, fortunately for our species, no human being is dumb enough to put you in charge, Hillman. <laughs> Next thing you know, he's getting a railgun slug through his chest. That happens very quickly in space combat in The Expanse. I mean, there was there was also there was the medic at the yes. beginning of the show who was, you know, strapped into a seat. And you think this is going to be an integral, you know, character. And, uh, yep, railgun slug, just as they're talking, takes his head off. Yeah, I was all prepared for a team of five and it. It ended up being four suddenly. I think it was when I spoke to Naren Shankar, the showrunner. I think that was the topic. Railguns came up in that one as well. It may be a recurring theme. I'm still not entirely sure, actually, why the UN and Martian ships started shooting at each other in Ganymede. That seemed unclear to me as well. I'm, I'm not sure what finally triggered. Obviously, there was shooting going on on the surface, and they couldn't tell who was shooting who because of the blackout, but why that suddenly led to all-out firefight in space didn't seem to be well laid out to me. And now the end result is at least one of Ganymede's gigantic solar mirrors destroyed. Hopefully they have more than one, because that's where they grow all the food. But what was the thing staring down at Bobby at the end? And I'm guessing this is my intro to your, to, to your thoughts on the protomolecule. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could sort of riff off railguns, which you know people are already experimenting with. So the fact that they're commonplace 200 years in the future doesn't seem that outrageous. Long-time and- Oz readers will may even remember, what's his name? AS400, who used to post in the lounge and apparently had built a railgun. Uh, I miss that, apparently. May have been a very early form of catfishing, because I'm mm. not sure he ever did actually have a railgun, but long-time readers may wish to prove me wrong. Anyway, I'm sorry, carry on. Having railguns commonplace and effective and things like that doesn't seem like a big leap. And the thought that we finally figured out how to move around the solar system reasonably commonly doesn't seem like a huge leap for 200 years worth of technology. But then the whole series is sort of based around this proto-molecule, which is not our technology, God knows where it originates from, and it's sort of driving the plot. Mm -hmm. And it's completely unrealistic, unspecified, not an extension of current technology. It makes the expanse a bit of a weird mix in that sense. So you can accept... Epstein drives and that we've made several orders of magnitude a breakthrough in propulsion technology but alien molecules that can bend physics to the degree that that thing can that's that's a step too far so the protomolecule lost me before it started messing with physics to be honest so it's a common trope to have you know some sort of 
cell or chemical or organism take over humans you know the body snatchers was it john carpenter's the thing all these movies are constantly you know having some alien in item whether it's a creature or take over human cells and use them for their own purposes and one it's used so often that it's sort of becoming a bit of a cliche to me. And two, I happen to be a biologist and I know what human cells can and can't do. And so all of it gets very unrealistic to me. I think maybe I've been interpreting it a different way. I mean, certainly on Eros, it it seemed to have incorporated people into, broke them down maybe, and it sort of extracted things like brainwave patterns. Yeah, I see where you're coming from in that case. So one, they never define what the protomolecule is, and maybe it's a collection of molecules or something like that. It came up in two or three episodes ago when we first met the psychopathic scientist, the one who survived the research team on Thoth. And uh, he was making comments about the... And I guess this is elaborated in some of the, in, in some of the books, but the idea that the molecule, it uses molecular structures similar to the ones that we see in proteins or things like that, but is able to create a bunch of proteins, for example, that can interface with signaling molecules that an organic life form would use and then interpret that and you know, convert that into whatever kind of energy it uses for its internal communication. But then it also presumably can, it can create other things. I mean, you know, when Julie Mao is in the motel on Eros and, you know, has then been incorporated, this just giant thing with the huge room-sized neurons all around the room. And- yeah, I've never even seen a giant squid axon, <laughs> which is something they use in research all the time. But that struck me as that one's going to be much bigger. Yep. And now what's it doing down on Venus? Yeah, I've, since we're being asked to completely suspend disbelief on what this this system can do... Who knows? It can survive on Venus. Why not? Obviously, any molecules, any proteins we're familiar with, you dump them into an atmosphere of sulfuric acid and you just get a tangled mess instantly. Right. But the protomolecule is magic, so that probably won't happen. Right. I think it's a classic case, I think, of you know one of the times when if you have science and the needs of the story in conflict, the story's always going to beat out scientific accuracy. Yeah, and I, I completely understand the need for that. But, you know... When you're seeing human cells made to do things they could never possibly do for the 20th time, it gets it gets a little old. It's less that the expanse is making things that are scientifically unrealistic central to the plot that happens all the time everywhere in science fiction, but the idea that it's an overused cliche that is central to the plot is, is kind of what gets to me, I guess. <laughs> I think there are, there are some readers, I think I've seen in the comments, that some people have the same complaint about the Epstein drives. My drive was working better, way better than I ever expected. Fuel efficiency was through the roof, a hundred times better than anyone had even thought possible. But, you know, I mean, come on, if you want to have some degree of dramatic tension in a story, you can't have journeys between planets taking four or five years. Wouldn't really work. <laughs> that would move the plot forward a bit slowly. I will give them credit. You know, Star Trek had this entire fictional technology behind their warp drive with all these buzzwords and jargon that sounded kind of science-y but didn't add anything. It didn't help you understand what was going on, really. Whereas here, they're not even trying. They're just saying, it's the Epstein drive and it works. And that's fine. It moves the plot along. It doesn't get into whether or not it's impossible because you don't know enough to judge that. And I'm more comfortable with that than something like the protomolecule where, you know, 
I know exactly how long it takes a human cell to divide and change its identity and things like that. And we're talking days to weeks. And here it's like a few hours and somebody's already growing weird crystalline stuff out of their nose. And then obviously there was whatever it was staring down at Bobby Draper at the end of the episode, which is something I've been curious about, is that how people who haven't read the books and have been watching this for a season and a half as pretty much a relatively gritty hard sci-fi series, you know, that's about humanity's expansion into the solar system. And now aliens show up and kind of, you know, was that something people were expecting? And if there are, is it even an alien? Maybe it's a bioengineered something or other. Yeah, so I I should admit that I have read absolutely none of the books, so I'm a good test subject for that question. So, you know, I didn't come into this with really strong expectations that it would be either one thing or another, and it seems to hop genres. You've got sort of a cop buddy show on when we introduce Miller going on for a few episodes and all of a sudden that ends. And you've got the space opera aspects and the political thriller with what's going on at the UN. And that's been getting really good now. Yes, yes. Uh, I love Shora Gdashlu's character. You both know how the world works. When the stakes are this high, many things are possible. And please let them know that if they can't, I will rain hellfire down on them all. And I think she does a brilliant job with it, and I can't can't wait to see more of her. Yes. I really liked early on in the episode when she was discussing how the UN has, I don't know, 16 binders of plans for war with Mars. And there's, you know, the plans for extraterrestrial contact are three pages, and the first step one is find God. <laughs> Shows, I guess, how, how unprepared they are for, for what's coming. I don't think that's unrealistic because... It's not something you take terribly seriously, you know. But not just that. I mean, how do you plan for somebody showing up with no sense of their technology, politics, things like that? You know, Mars, they know exactly what Mars is trying to accomplish, what technology they're playing around with, things like that. Whereas an alien shows up, how do you, how do you game for, who knows, anything from the proto-molecule to they're using rail guns too. Did you see Arrival? Yes, I did. That's, I guess, one take on, on what you do. But that, of course, is that's where the aliens are friendly. Yes. As you say, what happens if they arrive with rail guns? <laughs> or better tech even. You know, I thought Arrival was very well done. It's clear that there weren't strong protocols in place there and everybody was sort of making it up as they went along and because the earth is so fractured politically there were however many ships there were there were that many different approaches to uh, making contact is it something that nasa's planetary protection officers think about that if they do i've never heard them speak of it it's more about just not contaminating things yeah just to clarify the planetary for listeners who don't know this the planetary protection officers have two roles one they are protecting other worlds from our own bacteria so how do you keep from contaminating other worlds like europa or mars with life on earth so that if there is life there we don't kill it off with something more efficient and two if there is life there how do we keep it from coming back to earth and contaminating us so they have a twofold role but As far as I can tell, all their considerations are for life in the solar system, which we expect would not be incredibly complex and certainly not intelligent, or we'd probably have heard something from them by now. I don't know if you saw Eric Berger had a LinkedIn article earlier about Europa. 
where uh, apparently there's an idea that the ionizing radiation from Jupiter has broken down some of the water in Europa so that there's actually, you know, to oxygenate it. So, it's, you know, broke, split, split the water. And it may have oxygenated inland oceans to the point where they could have life. Cool, if it's true. Oxygen isn't a requirement for life. Yes, the atoms as part of other chemical compounds are, but you don't need free oxygen like we have in the atmosphere here to get life. There's lots of places on Earth that where oxygen is toxic to the things that live there. This is indeed true. Even if that weren't the case, it wouldn't rule out life in Europa operating under principles like we have in some environments on Earth. but Even anaerobic bacteria yeah. inside us. Yes. Certainly all the organisms that grow large and complex like us require oxygen because it makes for a really efficient metabolism. So if there is you know, significant oxygen floating around in, in Europa's ocean, then it opens up a, sort of a wider range of possibilities for how complex the life there can get. Giant space crabs? <laughs> yes, yeti crabs on Europa. You could have an ocean full of in- intelligent cephalopods. That'd be neat. I suppose it's possible. I mean, what it comes back to is that you still need some sort of chemical energy source at the base of the food chain. And we on Earth benefit from the fact that you know most of the energy is coming from a combination. The majority is coming from the sun. If there's enough radiation coming off Jupiter that you could get, you know, radiotrophic bacteria or life. That, of course, then you have the problem that assuming that they use DNA, you'd be getting the DNA be torn apart. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of problems. You know, and and certainly plate tectonics drives some, you know, complete ecosystems without input from the sun, but it doesn't seem like the tidal flexing of Europa is going to have the same sort of power output as plate tectonics does. So I suspect anything we have on Europa is going to be relatively energy starved and whether you could actually get to the the sorts of complex creatures we have on Earth, I'm, I'm not certain. With that in mind, do you think the way the show is depicting how humanity would live in the solar system is... Realistic? <laughs> Mostly, yeah. Ganymede is outside of the worst of the radiation on Jupiter. So, you know, if you're going to do something there, and it's it's planet size, so it's, it's a good spot for colonization, really. So the fact that that is sort of a major focus makes sense. A lot of the asteroids do seem to be relatively solid bodies and such, but other other ones are rubble piles. You know, they're sort of barely held together by gravity, and if you bump them too hard, they'll come to pieces. I th- don't think Eros is one of them, and so as far as I know, all the bodies they're sitting on are solid bodies with potential f- for things. As someone who hasn't been paying a huge amount of attention to this topic for the last couple of years, are people planning to start trying to visit these different parts of the solar system. I mean, obviously, Elon Musk announced that he's going to fly a couple of people around the moon. I saw there was the UAE has a plan for colonizing Mars that is apparently more realistic than anyone else's. But we started sending more probes. We visited the Cooper Belt and Pluto and, you know, many other regions of the solar system, which we've seen in better detail now than in, say, even five years ago. Do you think mankind will colonize the, the solar system, the belt? I expect we will. What form that colonization will take depends on future technology. Obviously, if we do get the Epstein drive or its equivalent, things get much easier. Maybe a better question is, is what are people doing 
kind of these days. You know, SpaceX, they're developing rockets. And NASA's also working on a deep space thing, I believe. It's working on the space launch system, which is designed to put heavy payloads into orbit so that we can, you know, extend beyond the Earth-Moon system, certainly. They have to deal with that bit first. Yes. If launch costs were cheap enough, I think we've got the tech to, you know, have a moon colony now very easily. The difference between the ISS and putting the equivalent on the moon doesn't seem to be that dramatic to me, although I'm sure people who really know space exploration are currently gasping and wanting to strangle me for saying that. I think that once you get beyond that and you start dealing with all the issues of radiation shielding and long-term supplies and sufficient food and things like that, as well as the general health issues of being in near-zero gravity, then things get really difficult, and what you really want is is faster travel. So in episode six, so Holden thinks they have the only source of the protomolecule left in, in the solar system. Yeah, which I suspect Bobby Draper would beg to differ on that if she, if she had the chance to talk to him. That's a bit naive of him. You know, he thinks that if everyone's decided to, to shoot their sample into the sun. But when Naomi showed in the graphic shortly before, we see that she's actually running a simulation. Right. And, and then it shows the missile just not going anywhere as, as they uh, think their work is done. To be honest, I think that's a good thing because the, you know, the protomolecule, as we've seen several times before, clusters onto energy sources. Like giving it the sun to eat is, in my opinion, a bad idea. So I think... I wouldn't have thought of that. You know, at, at the same time, blowing up a ship with a fusion reactor, which they've also done with the protomolecule on board would if it was so immune to the laws of physics that it could withstand the vaporization and everything then yes the sun might be in danger but they're seeming to imply that that there are some explosions that even the protomolecule can't survive i suppose i'm maybe channeling a bit of the andromeda strain in there <laughs> that's a, but yes yeah, so it's dominic tipper who plays naomi yeah she goes off the reservation yes I really wish I had seen that episode before I had interviewed her because that's a really interesting character development. You know, she seemed to be in with the rest of the crew and then all of a sudden, you know, it comes to the nukes and she's offering tips on how to safely disarm them. I'd suggest discharging the gyros first. A lot of missiles countermeasures trickle back up power from the guidance systems. Okay, thanks. I wasn't expecting your help. Belters have to help each other. Yeah, you know, she's sort of returning to her OPA roots there, and maybe her decision to keep the protomolecule around is because she wants to give it over to the OPA. It's not clear. Or, you know, she has something else in mind that we don't know about yet, but I think it's a really important moment in character development. I had the chance to sit down with three of the actors from The Expanse, one of them being Dominique Tipper, who is absolutely lovely and here's a chance to find out what she thinks about her character and the show in general hi this is john timmer i'm here at 30 rock with dominique tipper who plays engineer naomi nagata on the expanse hello thanks for joining us thank you for having me so were you much of a science fiction fan before you started on this um I can't say I wasn't because I've definitely watched science fiction. It's been a part of my life, but I can't say I was like a heavy fan. But the thing is, I've been, since I started acting, which was only six or seven years ago, I've been heavily cast in sci-fi, predominantly sci-fi. I mean, it's kind of opened up this world to me a lot more than 
my knowledge of it before. So, yeah, I would say I'm probably more of a fan now. And I think the quality of science fiction is, is just, along with our show, it's just out of this world. And so, um, yeah, I guess I am now. I'm like a new, I feel quite new to it. So I've got to ask you the hard question up front then. Star Trek or Star Wars? Uh, Star Wars. Okay, fair enough. This runs counter to your last answer, but what's it like to be Scotty? Yeah, because I guess that's who I actually am, aren't I? I love playing Naomi Nagata. I love that she is the smartest person on the ship and she's always got the best ideas and she's a woman. And it's, it's kind of incredible. I've, I, uh, you know, didn't even know this kind of thing existed. I didn't know this role was out there for me. And it's just, it's just been incredible, yeah. That's, that's how it feels to play her. I feel blessed to be able to portray that kind of woman. The Expanse clearly has its own sort of fictional technology that you're in charge of. How, yes. how much do you feel you have to understand what is supposed to be happening in order to play that I, role? I mean, I do need to know, uh, understand it. And luckily we have such a great team of writers and our showrunners got like a PhD and a... <laughs> physics all this fancy stuff that I know nothing about but yes I always find out what I'm talking about because I don't see how I can make it real if I don't and I researched um you know spaceship engineering before I uh, started creating Naomi so I mean I, I want to say I had an idea I had like kind of little pockets of information that I'd gathered but yeah if I've got to say something techie I always find out exactly what I'm talking about because otherwise it's just it won't have the conviction behind it. It does seem to be sort of an extension of our current technology as opposed to something like Star Trek. Yeah and that's the beauty of the show it's not too it doesn't um, ask the viewer to suspend their disbelief too much it's like I think it's a future that you could quite easily see us in based on what's going on in the world now and where we're at technology wise so Actually, it's one of my favourite things about the show, that you don't just get transported somewhere by a, a beam or whatever. It's like, it's real, it's hard, it's gritty. Yeah, I love that about it. Yeah, and it means you can't just fix things by uttering yeah. a few buzzwords and no, punching the computer. And you can't just, like, talk to the ship and it does stuff. It's like, no, this is manual, practical labour that still has to be done even that far into the future. Have you read the books at this point? Do you know what's coming for your character? I've read the first book um, just to obviously get an idea of the world and an idea of the source material, but then I stopped because it just it just all got a little bit too confusing and, and my Naomi is a little different to, I think, the Naomi in the books. Well, she for sure is. So it, it just felt a bit conflicting in that way and also it's like looking into the future um, and knowing what's going to happen to you. It's just weird. So I, I like opening a script and not knowing what's coming until that moment. So, yeah, I stopped reading the books. I had to. You said you did a little research on spaceship engineering. What is, how did you do that? Did you call some I people I just looked up it up. I mean, also, Naomi's self-taught. So I kind of wanted to get an idea of what that would mean. Like, how the hell do you self-teach yourself? <laughs> I don't know. I just, yeah, I just kind of looked at stuff, looked at people, and tried to get a kind of grasp of what that would mean, which, I mean, my knowledge is still very limited, like, there's only so far. I just wanted to get an essence of what that would mean and what kind of knowledge she would have to have to do that job well to the level that she does. So, yeah, just little bits and bobs. 
So you sort of touched on this a little bit, but there there haven't been many character main characters who are engineers in you know anything I can think of aside from Star Trek. So you know, how does it feel to be? taking on a relative rarity in this role? I think I still every day kind of like pinch myself because to me it's normal. This is seeing a kind of mixed race woman in this role. That to me is normal, but it's never, it's not portrayed. And I think our show makes a huge effort to portray a normal, diverse future. So I feel quite privileged to be a part of that because the expanse and how everyone works to keep it diverse is, is very much what I stand for. So to get to be a part of and act in something that is very much in line with my beliefs, I feel very blessed about. And she's just a brilliant character in general. Like everything is gray area on the show. No one's, no one's right or wrong. No one's good or bad. And I like that as well. I like the very human aspect that we continue to hold up. And that's through great writing and, and through just everyone wanting the show to be the best it can. It's, it's all very human. And so, yeah, I just love that I get to turn up and do a job that I love every day. Like, it's awesome. Yeah, you kind of mentioned you're happy to have a woman in this role because that's even, even more rare yeah. in a lot of things. Yeah, it is. And it just none of it makes sense to me because I'm like... I. I don't understand why all this is so hard for us all. Like, and, and so it's not difficult on The Expanse. We just do it. You have, it's not gender specific. It's not race specific. It's everyone's just there surviving. And it's just like, oh, it's like real life. <laughs> the future seems to have come pretty far in terms of race and gender issues. And yet you've still got this incredible tribalism based yes. on where you were born and people are ready to kill each other over that at, at a moment's notice. So do you think that lets you address issue, you know, because the differences are now fictional, do you think that lets you address issues that might be hard if you based it on our own yes, reality? Yes, I mean, we speak about this a lot, but the show is so relevant uh, to what's going on in the world today. And it's, you know, we're constantly looking at the political climate of the world we live in in The Expanse. and. It's freaky how similar it is to what's happening. And um, yeah, you very much get to see how uh, that on a, a macro level plays out on the micro and how it affects these people. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's freakishly similar. It freaks me out. But yes, it's great that we address it and we get to without really kind of rubbing anyone up the wrong way because it's fictional. I find it interesting that for, for solving a lot of the problems, it's actually very low-tech technology. You know, for defending against missiles, you have these guns. For getting into that locker, you have a hand drill. At the same time, you obviously are moving around the solar system much faster than we can ever do. So how do you think the line gets drawn in terms of you know, what's brand new and what is just, you know, a step on from what we've currently got? That's a good question. I just think there was an effort, and, you know, this this comes from our source material, James S.A. Corey. They wanted to create a world that was a believable extension of the one we're in now, and I just think that that's what they've done, and, and so that's what the show does. I, I don't know where the line gets drawn. I don't know, I guess, just to where it's believable and where it's relatable and where it still feels human. That's where the line gets drawn. I think when we start talking to ships and they start doing stuff, and that that's when it's like, well, no, we need to keep the world gritty and human and hard and um, difficult to operate in. It, it's not just this easy thing that 
we can just talk to AI and everything gets done for us. I think in the, in the human aspect, keeping it difficult in a way. You know, your character, along with the rest of the crew of the Resinante, are sort of thrown together suddenly, yeah. unexpectedly, and as a, as a chance mix of people. And in some ways, that's, I assume, what getting a cast together is like. Oh, it's exactly the same, yeah. And, and so, you know, was the chemistry that's built up through, you know, through the plot similar to the chemistry that you're developing with Yeah, it, I mean, it absolutely did. It The storyline, which was nice, was very much echoed off-screen, so... As we were getting to know each other off screen, we were getting to know each other on screen and, and, and the storyline thankfully let us play with that dynamic of this group of people that don't know each other and don't trust each other. And yeah, that we didn't have to pull too far from the imagination for that. I mean, we're a lot warmer with each other offset than the Rosie crew are, but yeah, it was gradual and now that's all settled in and locked in for season one so now in season two we got to go so much deeper with the characters and so much more into their psyche and and uh, the changes in their relationships with each other because we'd already done all that work but I think what's nice as well is as a viewer you get to watch them get to know each other which I think is so much more interesting than if they already all know each other and you're just kind of in that and um, I love that aspect of the show. It also allowed for a bit of a shock because you thought the doctor was going yeah. to be part of it and then he was killed nope. off Bye quite guys. early. <laughs> so it's a very large ensemble cast and some, like Shura, is still doing scenes that are completely unrelated to the rest of you. Yep. I mean, do you overlap with the other actors that are working on sort of different parts of the universe? So we do in season two. Obviously, um, in season one, we, we met Miller. So in season two, we kind of go into as the Rosie crew and Miller, which makes for some of my favourite scenes, actually. Obviously, I've only read so much of the book, so I don't know what characters overlap further down the line, and I don't let anyone tell me because I don't want to know. But I think we're all kind of on a path of collision. Um, I think that's the nature of the show in, uh, you know, in many ways. So, yeah, we're definitely with Miller in this season, but I'm not sure about the rest. Okay. Do you overlap on the set? Are they filming at the same time? Or? We don't overlap on the set that much. We're, we're quite separate from each other. Because obviously you've got Earth, there's a lot of locations and stuff where we're on a spaceship the whole time. So, yeah, we don't get to overlap much, but we do, we'll see each other at lunch or have dinners and stuff together and hopefully get to see each other that way or in rehearsal because we rehearse every week. But yeah, we don't overlap as much as I'd like to. How did you end up in this role? Was, was there a casting call? And you just I mean, I, uh, yeah, I um, actually put myself on tape because I was in Austria doing a film called Mind Gamers, which is coming out this year. And I put myself on tape to play Naomi and I actually didn't hear anything for a while. And then... I happened to be in LA just for a different reason. And I was asked to put myself on tape again. And so I did. And then I had a recall. And then before I knew it, they was like, we want you to do a chemistry read with Stephen Strait. So I did. And then I think it was a week later, I got told I got the role and I was just like, oh my gosh, this is happening. So it was quite traditional in a sense of, I just auditioned for it. Um, and got it and freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> Had you done much green screen before this? I'd done a little bit on Mind Gamers, but to be fair, we don't, we have bits and pieces of green screen, but there's a lot of big physical sets, like especially like the Rosinante, that is a fully functional working three tier 
set. So, yeah, I don't have to use my imagination that much. A lot of the kind of proto-molecule stuff is obviously CGI, but, um, yeah, our sets are amazing and very much immerse us into the world instantly from the moment we uh, walk in on it, which is nice. Last thing is, is there anything I haven't asked about that you want to tell us? No, just uh, watch the show. Everyone watch the show. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's nice talking with you. You as well. You've been listening to Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast about all the television that we're obsessing about. So be here next week and we'll talk some more.